Thanks for joining us. My name is Jonathan Storman. I'm the preaching minister at the Pleasant Valley Church of Christ. Welcome to the series Wednesday Night Conversations. Whenever you're listening to them, we've brought in some of the best thinkers in church leadership and ministry, specifically on issues that we care about as a church, like racial reconciliation and evangelism and being an intergenerational church. If you're a part of PV or if you're outside of Pleasant Valley or even outside of Arkansas, I hope that this series will be as much a blessing to you as it has been to me. Hey, Pleasant Valley. I'm here with one of my favorite people in the world, uh, Dr. Brother Jeff Childers. Uh, Jeff w- was at Highland with me. He, I've had you for so many classes. Um, you've been, actually, you've been to Pleasant Valley a few different times because your daughter was at Pleasant Valley for a couple of years. Um, the... Sorry, the kids have discovered that I'm outside. Um, <laughs> so you and Linda are some of my favorite people, and you uh, grew up in the anti-church tradition like I did in Churches of Christ, and we've had that in common to talk about, as well as um, the you taught my family the value of tradition. So every Thursday night, we light a candle and we say the our Sabbath prayer and we bring our mattresses downstairs and we all we all sleep downstairs together. And I'll always be grateful for y'all's influence. They were they were doing so good. Um, I'll always be grateful for y'all's influence in our our lives. Um, so I asked you to do this with me for Pleasant Valley because a few years ago, I audited a class that you did on the greatest, basically the greatest hits of the Christian tradition. And there's, uh, we read the best book of every hundred years or so. Um, do you, Gregory of Nyssa was, I remember you talking about him what what year was Gregory of Nyssa alive yeah Gregory hey guys uh (laughs) that was Joel yeah hey Joel it's good to see I only saw about half of his face Uh, oh hey giving you that's okay thank you Joel Uh, thank you Joel yeah, yeah, Linda and I love you too, Jonathan, and uh, we mi- we we miss you all around here in Abilene. Uh, yeah, it does seem like you took a lot of classes with me. Your minor was in me, it seems, uh, but that class was an audit, and we we looked at a lot of authors, including Gregory of Nyssa. You know, he was around at the end of the fourth century, in the latter years of the three hundreds. Uh, he was a uh, an important church leader who got involved in a lot of the the church fights that were going on back in those days about who Jesus Christ really was, whether he was human or divine or both, but he was also a great interpreter of scripture and spiritual Mm -hmm. writer. One of the things that that class did for me was help me appreciate kind of the, you know, there's 2,000 years of Christians and they didn't get everything right but they didn't get everything wrong. And there was so much wisdom and kind of 
depth there that I had never really heard of before. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, he had this metaphor that he seemed to come back to often about the Christian life being like climbing a mountain. Could you could you sum summarize that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know what you mean about these authors. It's really wonderful having conversation partners. You and I have spent a lot of time talking, you know, over lunch or whatever, and, and having living conversation partners is great. But some of my favorite conversation partners are the dead ones, you know, the <laughs> ones that really can't argue back. Uh, but they said some wonderful things, and they're they're worth uh, worth reading. Their lives are worth looking at. The centuries of Christianity are are just full of wonderful conversation partners and mentors. Gregory Nyssa is one of them. The book that we read together is, is about the life of Moses, which was uh, translated from Greek into English by a couple of Abilene Christian University guys, Everett Ferguson and Abraham Malherby. And that uh, book is about Moses's life, and in particular, his journey uh, towards God and the struggles that Moses had to deal with in making his way to God. And one of the things Gregory focused on uh, is the fact that it was a hard journey, that there were a lot of pitfalls and difficulties, uh, external ones, because Moses had a lot of obstacles, uh, but also internal ones. Moses' own struggles with confidence and struggles to do what God really wanted him to do and to keep his, his motives pure and all of that. So it's like an uphill struggle mm -hmm. and the uh, rise up the mountain of God to see, to see God or get close to God, whether it was in the days of the burning bush or later with the giving of the law. Uh, this is like uh, a metaphor for the Christian life, the Christian life as a struggle. Uh, Jesus, he didn't, he never made it sound like the Christian life was going to be simple or easy, you know? Right. Uh, it was a, a it, it would be a struggle. It would be a challenge because things that are worth getting come after a struggle. It's a, it's an uphill walk and the growth that you and I need to experience as Christians individually or that churches need to experience always involves uh, struggle. So for Gregory of Nyssa, he wanted the person who was reading this book to understand that the good Christian life was not a Christian life without trouble. The good Christian life is a Christian life that had a lot of struggle and uphill battles, but one in which a person trusted God and uh, continued to pursue the face of God in the midst of all that. So Gregory of Nyssa probably wouldn't be a best-selling author on the Christian like living section today, right? I I don't know. I guess uh, people aren't really too fond of the hard path. Uh, one of the things that some of my students really like about Gregory is his take on perfection. You know, he talks about what Jesus tells people in the Sermon on the Mount, that you should be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But then also what Paul says in Philippians about straining to take hold of that uh, mm. for which Christ has taken hold of him. Not that he's already attained all this, but he presses onward. And Gregory says, look, the Christian life is a journey. Perfection isn't this place that you reach on the number line. Perfection right. is a process 
in the journey of transformation into Christ's likeness. So if you're on the journey, then you're perfect in that sense. I mean, you've sort mm. of experiencing perfection, which is a life of daily growth, following God into greater Christ-likeness. People do like that. Yeah. Uh, they just don't like having to deal with the fact that it involves struggles. Uh, yeah, sure. I remember you saying in that class, and again, you know, there's a bunch of 20-somethings around, and um, I remember you saying, you want to know why Gregory of Nyssa would say that the Christian life is hard? Because it's worth something. And you made the analogy of how if any, there's no other part of our life that we would assume it would be easy and yet we would still be able to be good at it. Like, you know, nobody thinks tennis, it should just come naturally to me. No, you have to practice. And so I really like that metaphor of life with God as walking up a mountain, especially here in Arkansas, we actually have a mountain versus <laughs> hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and versus Abilene. Hey, I teach at ACU and we're on the hill, as you know. <laughs> yeah, the uh, slope. It's got it's several, slope. several feet in elevation right there. <laughs> yeah, that thing, the fall uh, that is, great. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. in the fall when the leaf changes, it's so, it's so beautiful. Just kidding. Yeah. I, I miss the people in Abilene, but I really like my trees here. Yeah, that's a beautiful place where you are now. Uh, love to visit again sometime when all of this is over. Yeah, um, we well, yeah what Gregory is after there reminds me of something that almost every spiritual master says, from you know from Jesus up into you know C.S. Lewis and beyond, right? Uh, but Isaac of Nineveh put it this way: um, that anything that is easily acquired is also easily lost. Mm. whereas what we attain after great struggle is guarded with great diligence. Uh, there's just something about that, that things that are really worth having require effort, and uh, we value them more, and skills that are worth having require practice. This is why I like to say Jesus called people to a way of life, and Christianity is more like a skill set or a, a practice than it is like mm. a, a state of being or a group to belong to or, or even just an eternal destiny. It's, it's mm. a way of being and it requires practice and practice takes time and effort. We know this when we're dieting or when we're learning carpentry or uh, music sure. or whatever. We understand these things take a lot of effort and practice. But for some reason, when it comes to Christianity and Western Protestant Christianity, at least, there's a tendency to forget that what's really worth having in the Christian life comes with effort and practice, and that that's a gift from God to sustain us in that. That's where the grace of God comes in. So he provides that, uh, those resources for us. I think I understood most of what you said. I had, um, we, we got a letter in the mail. Joel got a letter in the mail. He's very excited to see you again, Brother Jeff. Oh, so. that's, that's nice. Well, if you understand most of what I said, then that'll be sort of a first, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's, thank you for oh, that. Oh, you're talking about the connection and Joel. <laughs> I get it. Never mind. 
So uh, one of the things that I appreciated a lot about this, especially with this season, what at, at Pleasant Valley, I'm doing a series on Sundays called The Quarantine Church, where I'm looking at the letters that Paul wrote when he was in house arrest at, at you know, to Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, and Ephesians. And, you know, while when Paul's in house arrest, God, Jesus gets bigger and better for him. I mean, the stuff that he says about Jesus and the church, um, in part, maybe it's that um, the way that when I'm on a trip away from family, I'm, my family gets better. I just miss them. And, and you know, it seems like he's doing some of that with the church. She's radiant and without blemish uh, in Ephesians. His, his take on Jesus is in all. and um, it, God gets bigger and better for Paul when he's in quarantine. And it, ever since this pandemic started, I have thought a lot about Julian of Norwich. Um, she, you, you mind giving like the elevator pitch version of Julian's life? Yeah, sure. Uh, Julian of Norwich uh, was um, alive in the late 1300s and the early 1400s. So that's 14th, 15th century. Uh, in in England, in the the central part of of England, uh, uh, she we know about her because she wrote what we believe is the earliest book written in English by a woman, um, and she was uh, associated with the the Church of Saint Julian in the market town of Norwich in England. Uh, and Julian saw a lot, speaking of hardship and struggle, she saw a lot of that because those were, those were rough days. When she was just six or seven years old, uh, the Black Plague hit uh, that part of England and up to about three-fourths of the, the population of Norwich died. Uh, in fact, recent research in the impact of the plague in London shows that 60% or so of London uh, was killed during that time. And there were bouts of, of plague and epidemic, pandemic, uh, through her life. Uh, she uh, wasn't killed by that, but a lot of people around her were. She saw that, that struggling and, and that suffering. But she lived in Norwich, and uh, she uh, felt a call to consecrate her life entirely to the service of God. So she chose not to get married, not to have a family, not to, uh, you know, like per pursue a livelihood or something, but to become what's called an anchoress attached to the church uh, there in Norwich. Uh, she lived in a, in a little cell, isolated from the regular population, although she could sort of see it from there because she was uh, near the main road into the market town of Norwich. Um, and so she could, she was living there on the church grounds in a cell, devoting her life to prayer and service, uh, to counseling and helping those that might come by, but in a way that was sort of, as you said, quarantined or isolated yeah. from the regular population. And, and when, so out of all the books you made us read, which felt like, I don't know, 70 or 80 books, this oh, one, please. <laughs> this one was my favorite, uh, Julian of Norwich showings. Um, there's two things I was wondering if you could address that she said, um, she had a rich prayer life, 
she she basically came up with the concept of he's, the song he's got the whole world in his hands which <laughs> is the most trite way to describe to it of norwich 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 yeah do you, you mind addressing that yeah. kind of spiritual experience she writes about yeah um I think Julian caught on to something that, um, especially in contemporary Western North American Christianity, we struggle with, uh, and that is that suffering is an important part of the Christian life. Nobody likes it. Uh, nobody really wants it, probably, and you certainly don't wish it on anybody. But we follow a Lord whose principal saving activity <laughs> was to die on a cross. And so God's way of solving the world's problems was to enter the world as a human and to take all of those problems upon himself and to experience them fully himself, including suffering and death. And that Jesus' followers would have to drink the same cup. Jesus' followers would have to be baptized with the same baptism. You're thinking about what Jesus says in Matthew 20, right? And so there's something important about suffering. So Julian uh, asked God for a favor. She asked God for three graces, three gifts from God. Number one, to have a very clear, distinct recollection of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Number two, to have a bodily sickness herself to be sick, deeply sick. I think she believed that that was important so that she could identify with people who were sick and struggling and had loss. And number three, um, to receive three wounds. So she kind of, this is like three wishes and your last wish is three more wishes. You know, Julian does that with her third ask, three wounds. The wound of contrition, she wanted to feel painfully sad about her sin. The wound of compassion, compassio, passio means to suffer, com means with. She wanted to have the gift of suffering with those who suffer and to feel their suffering. And then thirdly, a deep and painful longing for God. Hmm. And uh, she asks for these things from God. And when she is 30 years old, 30 and a half, she says in her notes, she had uh, a near-death experience. They thought she was dead. They were starting to do her, the last rites, prayers over her, getting her grave ready. And she has a vision of the Lord uh, on the cross. And part of this vision includes this image of something no bigger than a hazelnut in the palm of his hand. And she says, what's that? And the Lord tells her, it's the world and everything in it. It's the whole universe. It's, it's, all, it's all creation. It's everything. I, I have it in my hand. It's, it's, it's that manageable to me. Uh, uh. You think it's big and unmanageable, but to me, it's this thing. And I love it. And I made it and I'm taking care of it. So turn loose of your anxieties and, um, and live for me and others. So that's, that's the vision of the hazelnut. Yeah, had the whole world in his hands. And uh, that's that. the, 
I, I mean, I I love I love that you think it's unmanageable, but this is this is the perspective that it is for me. And and then in that context, I mean, you know how much I love Julian of Norwich. I I uh, have so much of what she has written down because of you know god in your goodness give me yourself you are enough for me um but the i mean the thing that she's the most famous for do you want to say the line brother jeff because in light of the of the context of he's got the world the all the universe like a hazelnut in his hand it makes sense because it's a black plague i mean it's not like she didn't know a lot of bad stuff happening she says in the middle of all that yeah and 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 that she she's experienced all of that and she sees it in the world people have been coming by and asking for her prayers asking for her blessings uh sometimes i'm sure the people recovered from sickness sometimes they didn't she saw a lot of suffering in 14th and 15th century england and she also saw a lot of sin suffering caused by people's sin by the stupid things people do yeah. Uh, the mistakes they make that cause harm to themselves and to others and dishonor God. She talks a lot about sin. And uh, sort of at the end of the book or closer to the end, uh, as she's wrestling with all of this in the face of God, uh, she comes to this deep understanding that even with all of the sin, all of the evil, all of the sickness, all of the doubt, all of the loss, here's God holding the universe in his hand, and she finally decides all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Which has got to be one of my favorite refrigerator magnet slogans, bumper sticker statements, right? All right. will be well, all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. She admits, I don't know how. I don't know how it's going to be well. I can't figure that out. But my experience of God has shown me I can trust him, and I know that this will be true someday. Yeah. I, man, that, that is why the Christian tradition is so good. It's so good, and um, you're right. American Christianity doesn't do suffering well. One of the things you taught me—that's um, that's a low-hanging fruit joke, so I'll, I'll, I won't make it. But one of the things you have taught me is to know God is to suffer God. I mean, that's that's the language that people used to use to talk about it. To know God is to suffer God. And I think you once told me something along the lines of Christianity. A lot of Christianity is about your relationship with pain. And you're, you're kind of what you were saying. It's not that pain is good. It's not that we want to be martyrs or anything. But um, there are resources in the Christian tradition to enter into suffering differently and to to not, you know, so, for example, in a pandemic, in a plague, this is not the first time the Church of Jesus Christ has faced um, global plague. Kind of, you know, it's a different kind of plague than before, and that it's all happening at the same time across the world. Um, but throughout Christian history, 
Christians, th- this has been a kind of re- season that refines Jesus's people and helps. I don't want to say separates the wheat from the chaff, but you know, like does help people figure out whether or not we really want to take this whole Jesus thing seriously and all of its implications. I should end with questions. I guess. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to comment on that. Again, Jesus is a suffering savior and uh, the apostle Paul, uh, going back to Philippians 3, 10 says, he wants to know Christ. Well, we all want to know Christ. Well, what does that mean, Paul? Uh, I want to participate with him in his sufferings and become like him in his death. That's what Paul says. And those are, those are, those are difficult words to say, but I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, Stephen, like at the end of Acts 7, has his most intimate, closest, most profound moment of connection to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when? Well, at, at the moment of his being most like Jesus, dying in a difficult way, unjustly, was unfair, for the sake of obedience to his Father. And it's a death that becomes redemptive, not in the same way that Jesus is, but as a kind of shadow of that, because his death teaches us and shows us things and becomes... Stephen's death, I mean, becomes an, uh, an exemplar for us. So this is why First Peter talks about rejoicing um, in, in our sufferings because we're participating with Jesus. The Christian tradition, it's just full of that. Ignatius of Antioch is one of the earliest martyrs of Christianity right at the turn of the second century. Um, he writes to the church at Rome where he's going to be martyred. And he says, let me be a true disciple. I really want to imitate Jesus in this. Uh, but there's so many other resources too, as we think about models. You know, thinking of, of, of women from the Middle Ages, one of my favorites is Mechthild of, of Magdeburg, uh, because she writes this love poetry to God. And one of the things she likes to focus on, she's, she's writing in the late 1200s, so a little before Julian of Norwich, Julian's English and Mechthild is German, but she um, writes about how distant God feels much of the time, but distance makes the heart grow fonder, and the courtly love poetry that she was so familiar with from her own upbringing teaches her that the distance of the beloved makes you crave the beloved more and meditate on the beloved and seek after the beloved. At least that's what it should do. So when we're having these experiences of struggle that make us wonder, where is God in all of this? Well, a mature Christian response is to take advantage of the opportunity to let that peak our, our, our passion for God. Um, John of the Cross, who's, couple of centuries after that, says, but here's that God is giving you an opportunity to find out how you and God are really doing, uh, not how you and God's blessings are doing and how good things are that you're receiving from God, but 
what your relationship with God is really like, if everything else were taken away and it's just you and God, then how are you at that point? It's an opportunity to grow closer to God and to learn when we can't rely on anything else to rely on God alone. I think uh, this is all through the Christian tradition, beginning with Jesus, really before Jesus, because the suffering savior idea is in the Old Testament, Isaiah okay. 53 and other passages too. I remember, because you had us read, you know, all these for 2,000 years worth of books. I remember walking away from that. It still has changed my life. Um, the thing that I took away from there is you couldn't hurt those people. Those men and women, if you were to, if you were to throw them in jail, if you were to you know, whip them or whatever, they would be like, oh, we're, we're getting to participate in the sufferings of Jesus. <laughs> it's like, you know, what, what can you do to men and women like that? It's the same things that make me make my heart swell when I hear about the first martyrs of the church. And I, I remember a turning point in life being for me, I don't know, six, seven years ago, praying that prayer, God do, okay, whatever you got to do in my life. And then I realized I, I don't think God could do his good work in my heart because I had developed so many coping mechanisms to deal with the little amounts of pain I already had to, um, you know, go through. Um, and so part of, part of the challenge of this season is, you know, for example, alcohol, G, you know, the new Testament is largely positive about alcohol and, um, you know, there's warnings in the Proverbs and other places about drinking too much or drinking to get drunk. Um, but Jesus, you know, w turned water into wine at a wedding, was, you know, had a reputation for drinking, even maybe un unduly deserved reputation. But the one time we know of Jesus didn't drink, it was the, it was on the cross. It was when it would have numbed the pain. And so what I hear in, you know, I don't know what quarantine looks like for everybody that's listening on this, but I would imagine everybody's got different coping strategies for pain. And one of the things that the Christians who have gone before us, I think would like to tell us what, what their life is, pain has got to be felt. And God will sit with you and be with you in that pain. Um, you will you will find in you know if it's job pain, if it's family pain, if it's anxiety about the future, all those kind of things. You know you can binge watch your way out of that. You can develop destructive habits that can help you put it off for a little bit. But these men and women who have gone before us found that by not escaping, they found God more present than ever. Is that right, Brother Jeff? Yeah, no, I don't think I, I could say that better than you did. You said it so well. Uh, one of the things I've noticed some people talking a lot about lately from church history 
is the uh, are some of the plagues from early Christianity, but especially in the middle of the third century uh, with Cyprian of Carthage, also the Bishop of Alexandria and some others, and the ways that Christians responded to the pandemics of, of that day, which might have been smallpox, uh, we're not really sure, but it impacted a large part of the, the Roman population. Christians didn't explain why these things were happening. Uh, Christianity tends not to do that. It tends not to say, well, here's why something's happening. Here's why God did that. But they did uh, explain what Christians were meant to do. We don't always know why things are happening in our lives or why things are happening in the world. This is another way of saying that we're not God, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do know what to do. And we don't have to understand the why to know the what. We know God wants us to be faithful. And we know God wants us to serve others in ways that, that make sense. Um, and we know that God wants us to receive every opportunity, including the very difficult ones of quarantine, for example, and even suffering as opportunities for growth. Uh, That doesn't mean God sent me every moment of suffering so that I would grow. I don't know exactly what God's up to or why he does everything that he does. That's not the point. The point is that when suffering does come my way, it is an opportunity for growth. And I'll have to admit, an opportunity that I tend not to enjoy that much And I'm Mm. like you. I have a lot of coping mechanisms, and I have ways of trying to get around the suffering and the struggle and the sacrifice, if at all possible. But on good days, we we welcome the opportunities to grow when the suffering or the struggles come. I think the quarantine season is definitely one of those times for many of us. Yeah. Well... Brother Jeff, let's close out with you singing. He's got the whole world in his hands. <laughs> no, for real. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for taking time. Uh, you sincerely, you and Miss Linda are some of our favorite people in the world. I can't wait till you're here again, and we'll have you on the zip line. And um, I want I want to introduce you to you. Pleasant Valley in person. Um, have you come preach sometime soon once things get back to whatever new normal looks like? Well, it's been a fun conversation. And God God bless you and Leslie and all the kids. And uh, God bless Pleasant Valley during this season. Thanks, Brother Jeff. I'm Cindy Rowe. Eric Butner and I were given the task of leading the medical ministry working group at PV. And so our charge was to find opportunities to support our healthcare system. Now, fortunately, our hospitals have not been overwhelmed with a need for additional beds or providers. However, we did find that there was a need to support these critical workers who were on the front line of medical care. 
And so we began by partnering with UAMS to see what their needs were. And so far, we've been able to provide 155 bags of school and craft supplies for the children of these critical workers who are being cared for by a volunteer-run day school. We've also provided lunch for 65 of the volunteers at that day school at the end of their first week. We also have other projects in the works, which includes a mask campaign. We hope that you'll participate with us in these and other upcoming opportunities to be a blessing to those in our community. Hey PV, my name is John Chapman and our group has been focused on the gathering and distribution of food to those in need. There's two separate opportunities that I want to share with you today and we need your help. The first one many of you have already been aware of and have participated in is the food box drive. It is very similar to how the Thanksgiving box drive worked in the past except the boxes are gonna have some more food items to put in them so that it lasts a family a longer period of time. The second opportunity I wanna share is packing meals. We've partnered with City Connections and the Outreach Program to pack and distribute 10,000 meals. We will designate it Saturday very soon and we ask that teams of five sign up to actually pack these meals. We'll have gloves and food and everything that we can sanitize but we ask that you bring your own mask for protection. Thank you very much. Good morning. This is Kate Dalton. Pleasant Valley Community Cares is a program designed to pair an individual outside our church with a need with someone inside our church who can help them. If you have a relationship with someone who has a specific need, call our church office and ask for Cheryl Altwell. We want to help while also building long-term relationships to spread the love of Christ. Hi, my name is Alan Buchanan and I'm fortunate enough to lead a group of talented people with a restoration research team. Our group's goal is to provide our congregation and community a place to find support during times of struggle, whether that be now or in the future. So really what we're trying to do is we're trying to connect people who are hurting with people who can help and people who want to help realizing that we'll be in both of those positions at some point in time. We're, we have a couple of things that we're doing that we're excited about uh, in these areas. The first is we're working on a caring and compassion hotline uh, for anyone who's in need. We're also beginning a regularly occurring panel discussion called Restoration Conversations, and we're very excited about this. This will be, uh, be an ongoing dialogue about anticipating and handling difficulties as we resume our normal lives and beyond. Uh, when we look at these topics, we'll be emphasizing financial, relational, emotional, and spiritual recovery, always pointing towards Jesus as the true path to restoration. So we'll be starting this next week. Uh, so y'all be looking for information regarding restoration conversations early in the week next week. Thank you.